for the music. You know what time it is. One o'clock on the East Coast. This is a special market. Every day is special, Dan. It is. But today Every in day is special. But today, but today in, in particular. You know, it's high praise, the fact that anybody watches what we do, be it here on Market Call, listens on the tape, anything that we do, Fast Money, all those things. It's always high praise. It's even more so when somebody that you respect in the industry, somebody has been doing it for quite a long time that is revered, actually watches and listens and respects you uh, in, in like fashion. And that would be, of course, Doug Cass. But before we get to Doug, today's market call brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. A lot to talk about. I mentioned in my tease that the Giants have very quietly built the best defensive line in football. <laughs> I know you don't want to talk about that. Um, how are you, Dan? I'm doing well. I mean, listen. You know, one of the things I'm just going to tell a quick story about Doug Cass, the aforementioned, who's going to be joining us in absolutely uh, just a few seconds here. But I started the business in 1997 at a hedge fund. I happened to be um, out to dinner one night on the Upper East Side. Um, and Doug will probably recall what restaurant that was. Um, Doug came over to the table I was at with a guy that I worked for this hedge fund, introduced himself. He had written an article in Barron's. This was in 1998 as uh, the, the, the internet bubble was just bubbling up. And, you know, we use that term bubble and people think it's like a really negative connotation. You could have been investing in internet stocks in 97, well. 98, 99. It wasn't until the bubble popped, right? But Doug actually had a great write-up in Barron's talking about the zeitgeist, the moment that was going on in the markets, okay? But also highlighting some of the people that were, it was called Kids Today, and we'll, we'll try to find it. We'll put it in the show notes. It was absolutely brilliant, and it was, it was talking about some of the people in the markets. One of them happened to be the guy that I worked for. So flash forward, 2011 or 12, I'm doing Fast Money with you. I haven't seen Doug since then. I've been reading him on Real Money. He's all over the place, and he, I think he called into the show that day mm -hmm. and said something about it, and he and I emailed afterwards and it's been since then 10 11 years of emailing almost every day and, and and the commentary and the guy's a genius without further ado bring him in bring him in doug cast founding partner seabree oh there he is um doug we quote you you know this every day we love your work you got a legendary career you're not done you're you're still doing it as well as you've ever done at least i can tell from your commentary and i see your returns um at seabreeze so Welcome to Market Call, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, long time, first time. <laughs> do you remember, Doug, do you remember that article, Kids Today? It was no, I, wrote, I, I wrote this book. I wrote this. Um, I've written eight editorials for Barron's in the Other Voices section over the years. Um, I think I was Alan Abelson's favorite. Uh, Barton Biggs and I were Alan's favorite money managers, and I think um, – I was quoted probably twice as many times as Barton Biggs, which is embarrassing considering his career relative to my career. Uh, I'm not worthy. Um, and so I wrote, I wrote this piece in 1998 called Kids Today. And it was basically paying homage to one of my dear friends uh, who had, had died, Bob Brimberg. He was known as Scarsdale Fats. And there was a chapter on him in The Money Game. Remember Adam Smith's famous book in the 1960s? Actually, that got me involved in, in the investment business. And I talked about how in the uh, dot-com uh, mania, it would morph into a bust and there would only be one uh, recognizable money manager who was successful during it that existed and would flourish. And that was your boss, Stevie Cohn. 
Uh, and I talked about the, his kid, Adam, meaning Adam Sender. And uh, that was one of the most fun editorials I've ever written. If you can find it, it'd be great for uh, viewers. As they say, Doug, we will find it and we'll put it in the show notes. Is that a thing? Yeah, but guy, you know, you use this term prescient. So, so Doug wrote this in 98 and he's basically laying out. You didn't say the bubble was about to pop. You recognized the bubble. You recognized the market participants who were there to take advantage of, of just the new dynamics of this market, right? And, and the changing kind of, you know, interest in, 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 a, in a whole different sector of stocks, that sort of thing. And I did have a front row seat for it in 97 and 98, and there were a few better than it. I think what's interesting, Doug, is that you recognize the fact that these sorts of market participants are going to adapt to different market environments, right? At the time. But the ones that get sucked in, the Johnny-come-latelys, it's going to end very badly. And that was the case. That was the case. And um, I know Howard Marks has this wonderful um, commentary at Oak Tree Capital periodically. And he wrote in his most most recent um, column, uh, testing the temperature of the market, he said, quote, remember in extreme times, because of the above, the secret to making money lies in being a contrarian and not Mormon. And that's really very important. And it's one of the most important uh, lessons besides the lesson I just gave your daughter, Ellie. Which we did before the show started. Ellie's going to be a senior in high school this year. That's Dan's youngest daughter. So let's talk about the market real quick. 30,000 feet perspective. You know, I think you know the views that Dan and I both share. I think in some ways we echo some of the things you've been saying in other ways, we probably have some disagreements. My view has been everything is predicated off sort of the global bond market, uh, Dougie, and the unraveling of the bond market, not only here, in my opinion, in the United States, but globally, I think is at the crux of everything. What Am, am I misreading this or is that as important as I make it out to be? Uh, no, you're not. Um, and uh, what the, one of the things I like about you guys, and I mentioned to Dan's daughter, is that you admit when you're wrong and you explain why you're wrong. And we try to learn from why we're wrong. Um, and I was wrong, too, in that in from March, without going into it, I thought the market, I had a contrary view that the market would experience 5%, 10% up in the first half and then lose it all and then more in the second half. And uh, what got me off base was the move from March to June when um, I would say that the the equity market started the summer as as a voting machine with FOMO and animal spirits delighted. It ends it's ending the summer as a weighing machine uh, with the prospects for, I think, starker than consensus corporate profits, uh, slowing global economic mm-hmm. reality, the resumption of commodities inflation the continuance of a wage price spiral and higher interest rates, both real and absolute. And um, so, and I should, let me just frame by saying that I run a hedge fund. Um, I do a couple of things. I still write for the street.com where, which Jim Cramer founded. Uh, I teach advanced economics in the second year MBA at Yale school of management. I teach in Dr. Schiller's course and I run a hedge fund. I had my hedge fund until 2013, and we were prospering, growing assets, and performing well, which is more important than growing assets to me. And then I was struck with prostate cancer, and things got bad, and I didn't know what the future held, so I redeemed out all my investors. And I planned, when I got better, to resume the hedge fund. Of course, then COVID hit, and uh, but I started up about a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, Seabreeze Partners, and that's what I'm doing right now. So everything... 
I'm talking about I'm doing it, Seabreeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not paper trading. So let, me, so let me stop you for one second and say this. You know, the word but for that Carter uses all the time. But but for Silicon Valley Bank in March, my sense is, and again, you can't do the counterfactual, but your prognostications, I think, would have been spot on, somewhat counterintuitive. But what happened with those regional banks were the best thing that happened to the market for about four or five months. Thoughts on that? That's what I missed. And I think you guys missed. Um, I missed that the liquidity added from the regional bank crisis uh, would create that supercharged FOMO liquidity driven advance from March to, say, June. That's what I missed. The interesting thing in my hedge fund, you know, we were profitable last year when everyone lost 20 or 30 percent and we're more than profitable. We're doing better than we did last year um, um, in 2023. And I was actually something few people talk about is how you manage a hedge fund when you're when you're when your narrative is wrong. And we actually made a small amount of money being net short from March to June in that, you know, when the market went from up 7% to up 18 or 19%. So that was risk, good risk management. And that's really important to me. But I think that we're now, to answer your question, um, in an aging business cycle with very restrictive monetary policy. Uh, we have a still rising cost of capital, which is going to lead to loan reset problems. We're lapping very easy fiscal policy. We had $2.5 trillion of excess consumer savings, which have been depleted to a couple of hundred billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So household liquidity is rapidly eroding at, at a time in which there is an increasing risk of recession over there in Germany and in the rest of Europe, and importantly, at the engine of global economic growth, China. So our economy has, until recently, uh, diverged from overseas economies as the lags in monetary policy transmission have widened, but the impact has not been repealed. Um, uh, Remember, we started the year with defensive market positioning as there was a universal belief that stocks would move lower. So we had the FOMO, we had the animal spirits, it reversed the conservative positioning. That's changed. Uh, The downbeat market expectations have become morphed into a bull market in complacency and positioning is now offensive, literally and figuratively. Uh, And as you said, the appreciation in stocks since March has occurred despite a sharp rise in interest rates. And that's where you and I, us three, have been wrong. Um, But um, I don't think the gap between and P.E. ratios is, is sustainable. And I suspect we're now facing a mean reversion in valuation ahead. So, so Doug, you hear us say things like Doug Cass has forgotten more about investing in banks and analyzing bank stocks than we'll ever know. Okay. And so it's, so it's interesting to us that, you know, coming out of that period uh, in March, in April, after that liquidity was provided, you know, we saw some of the money center banks get back on their horses. They were clearly the beneficiary of some of the things that went on with some of their smaller sort of brethren. But we're starting to see now as, and Guy's been talking about this, I think fairly succinctly, and I know you've been writing about it a bit, is that, you know, with interest rates going higher, some of the the, the very problems that took down the regional banks, banks, right? These these held to maturity, mark to market situations, um, you know, 
know, it's only going to become that much worse for some of these. Like, like there's a reason, in my opinion, that Bank America lags, let's say, you know, JP Morgan, it's down 15% in the year versus JP up 10% in the year versus Wells Fargo flat on the year. Citigroup is down 10% of the year. Market participants are making judgments about the very thing that took down some of the largest regionals just a few months ago. Talk to us a little bit about that. And then let's get to the offensive part as, as uh, to the double entendre that benefited just from the liquidity, the movement into some of the tech stocks, right? But we're seeing a lot of these banks round trip those moves since mid-July after they reported. What is your take here? And are we likely to see a, another like set of palpitations as it relates to our financial institutions, especially if rates continue to march higher? Okay. Um, one of the only industries I think I know well is banking. Um, uh, I probably am the only hedge fund manager who was a Nader Raider. Uh, you youngins, Dan, you wouldn't even know what a Nader Raider is. I'm sure Guy does, uh, mm -hmm. being from Georgetown because he was based in Washington. And when I was uh, in my second year at Wharton in business school, uh, I co-wrote a book with Ralph called Citibank. Um, and then I ended up following the financials at Putnam. Uh, and I, I voted me number one bank analyst on the uh, buy side. Um, so I, it's an area I know. I don't understand technology very well. I don't understand commodities that well. I don't understand a lot very well. But banks I know. I was along the banks in, into early, let's say, February twenty. 23. They had a, a very strong run, as you remembered. And then as the Fed intensified its tightening, both in, in duration, in timing, and in magnitude, I was concerned about the, the potential for uh, the deposit beta issue, migration of deposits out of banks and other financial intermediaries into money market funds and what it would do for the net interest income. Um, and I sold the banks and then began to short some of the banks, um, and, uh, have avoided them. It's simply, um, the wrong stage of the economic cycle to own banks. And it's complicated by the likelihood that the fed will be higher for longer. Um, I think that the banks are, uh, the, everyone uses banks and energy stocks and the Russell as, um, as value stocks. And the general consensus has been that the advance in the S&P would be confirmed by a broadening out of the market into energy financials and the Russell. Well, the Russell is, isn't growing. Energy stocks are doing poorly. And banks have, as Dan just said, have made a, a, an about trip, about uh, in a round trip. Mm -hmm. This is all complicated finally by the complexities and costs of the new regulatory move. See, the, the negative side, the positive side was the liquidity guy that was introduced in the financial system that developed into animal spirits and FOMO in general. The negative is that it's going to lead to complex and costly regulations for the banking industry, whereas the non-bank uh, financial intermediaries are free of regulation and they're going to benefit and gain market share. So I don't like the banks at all. I think they are shorts. It's interesting. You know, I obviously agree with you for a while. And I've said that 
people will look at banks and talk about price to earnings and reasonable on valuation, all those different things. I think what they're not taking into consideration is, first of all, they've all become to a certain extent utilities and more regulation is coming. I think credit is going to be tighter and maybe the need for credit. I mean, I think, you know, if things were to slow down in a meaningful way, that's obviously not particularly good for banks either. And I think a lot of them, quite frankly, have gotten lazy over the last decade or so, not understanding what duration risk really means. So the fact that we have not got any more headlines from some of these small and regional banks doesn't mean they're not more coming. So I think there's a shoe from to drop there as well. That's just my belief. In terms of especially this- for the, the regional banks are important lenders to small and medium-sized companies. Exactly. And these are companies that are, that face this um, loan rate reset right. cliff, and uh, they're going to be a lot less profitable. Their coverage is deteriorating. I, I read where the Russell Index, if rates stay where they are in 2025, I think it was uh, Bianco said this yesterday uh, in a tweet, um, the IWM will lose one third of its profits just on rising interest costs. Which is remarkable. So let, so let me then continue that because I agree with you. So small, small and mid-sized companies in the United States employ, I think, and you know better than I do, 70% or so of the people that are employed in the country. So if you start to do that, if our economy is 65, 70% driven by people buying shit by the consumer, and if those people are going to be somewhat mitigated or hamstrung by their employers and by these regional banks, I don't know how that's a bullish scenario for, for the equity market. And, you've, and, 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 and think about the Federal Reserve, which faces this trilemma, the challenge of simultaneously reducing inflation. And we could go on. I think the only one who hates the Fed more than me is you. Yeah, that's, um, I'll take um, that mantle, yes. Uh, minimizing, as you just discussed, minimizing the hit to economic growth and jobs and maintaining the stability of the financial system. They screwed up so badly. In fact, the mistake in keeping interest rates and doing this kind of a priori policy mm -hmm. back then, which has now morphed into the opposite ex post analysis. A, post uh, a posteriori, a posteriori, but yes. Posteriori, correct. Um, and this, 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 this feeds at the, um, the valuation risk in the market and the likelihood that we're see I'm, I'm less concerned. I've always been less concerned about a recession and an extended period of, um, mm -hmm. of uh, what I call slugflation, sluggish economic growth and prickly um, inflation for many, many years. I mean, if you, if you think about it, um, I just read a, a, a federal reserve, um, a, a column on the Federal Reserve website in which it said that lower effective tax rates for corporations and lower interest expenses in the last 15 years uh, has contributed to 55% to 60% of the corporate profit growth. Mm -hmm. And that's reversing. And then you superimpose upon that something you guys have been talking about, deglobalization, which essentially serves to increase the expenses of um, of corporations, this is a real real problem in terms of sluggish growth. And then 
deglobalization, think about it. China has been the engine of global economic growth and the beneficiary of globalization. As they lose those orders, and you see that in their weakening net exports, um, that hurts, obviously, the Chinese economy as well. Yeah. And Doug, that brings us to that offensive part of, of the stock market this year, right? So w- when we had this um, kind of liquidity added to the system in March and, and in April, it found its way into some of the highest uh, valuation tech stocks, which happened to be some of the biggest stocks in the entire stock market, which also seemed to be gripped by a mania in and around the interest um, in AI. And, you know, one of the things that I always find kind of interesting, you know, we sit here and we stare at our fact set machine all day and we watch every tick and, you know, hundreds of stocks and we're watching different, you know, financial instruments and this and that, whatever. But I also, and this is one of the saddest things about me not being on Twitter anymore, because it was a great place to curate lists of folks, right? Like, you know, like, so I had you know, um, two dozen guys like and gals like Doug, who are just in market participants who are saying this, and they're always very careful about what they're saying, things when, and then you got these news headlines from these organizations. It was just a great place to get a really good, you know, like, um, you know, snapshot, I, I guess, of, of the vibe of the mood in the markets, that sort of thing. So I missed that a little bit, but we obviously um, text and email a bunch. You were not that quick to jump on the bubble saying it's going to pop soon. You know what I mean? I think some of the, the, some of the work that I at least read from you on real money is that you wanted to see a cycle. You kind of waited until yet Nvidia report and this, that. but then you started layering things that some techies might say, well, that's a bit normie from some old guys on wall street to say, and I'm just being really honest to say this, but this is on the margin, how these sentiment shifts take hold in the markets, right? It's like you have to start thinking about. So you've been writing about chatbots really for the last couple of months, not before May 25th or whatever NVIDIA gave that report, but afterwards you've been tracking the data about how you're seeing the uses decline and some of the other anecdotal things and what's happened. Microsoft sold off 10%. You know, a lot of things are starting to confirm the fact that this might've been a moment in time. Now we could all agree it's going to be a massive secular shift that is going to take place in the economy on the back of this sort of technology, but the stock market pulled forward a lot of that excitement. Speak to this and how your thought process has changed over the last few months and how you're positioning. Because tonight, Guy and I have been saying it, we've been saying it on CNBC, we've been saying it here. This this is going to be a really important 24 hours for this trade, in my opinion. And it could have months, if not years of ramifications, in my opinion. Yeah, I I have called uh, in recent weeks, um, chat GPT, um, I have, I've called it an elegant parlor game mm-hmm. um, that is going to produce limited revenues and abundance of higher costs for corporations. And about an hour ago, I sent you Paul um, Kedrowski's uh, Substack. Mm-hmm. You should provide your viewers with a link to that. It's really informative, and Paul knows more than you than you and I have. Have ever known about in technology, Um, and he comes to the same conclusion. So I will leave it there. Um, I just, um, I just think um, it's not new. I remember when I started the series of columns uh, on Real Money about two months ago. I started with the cover of Forbes, which talked about AI in 1995. And then um, actually underneath had a picture of a woman who was a CEO of um, 
what is that uh, computer? Uh, it was a, a laptop seller, uh, and it said this this company was going to destroy Dell. Compaq. <laughs> yeah. So it was a a double mistake. So, um, so <clears throat> you know, emotion. It's something else Howard Marks talked about in his last uh, commentary in a, at Oak Tree. Um, investors' emotions go to and fro. And our job, as I did in that Kids Today article in 1998 in Barron's in the editorial, are the hardest thing is to judge when there's an overshoot. I believe that March, June, there was an overshoot in technology, which continues to this day. So let's talk about, you know, history sort of repeating itself. I think it was 99, I don't remember exactly when, but Sun Microsystems, Scott McNeely founded the company. The, the growth that the market was sort of rewarding them with was clearly unsustainable to the point where he actually came out, I think, with a chalkboard or something and tried to explain to people how, in fact, it was unsustainable. And I think he did a great service. Nobody wanted to listen to him. But, you know, that was an important company then. The same way NVIDIA is an important company now. It's just the levels with which the market is taking it, to me, seem a bit extreme. So, how important, again, in terms of market sentiment, do you think this NVIDIA release is going to be this evening? And then, obviously, the subsequent price action. Um, I think the latter is more important. I forgot what te technician, maybe it was Mendelssohn, said. It's not the news that counts. It's how the market reacts mm -hmm. to the news. Um, look, NVIDIA is a great company. I wish I owned it at $150. Um, they're going to beat the numbers. They're going to raise the bar. Everyone knows that. Let's see how the market responds. I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And we've been talking about this, Doug, a little bit. I mean, By the way, when I short stocks, Dan, yeah. as you know, I short, I, ne I rarely short, you know, high beta stocks, uh, you know, these dot-com stocks. And when I do, and I have a three and a half hour lecture at Yale, which talks about the construct of short selling. I've always said that how you construct, and you're an options guy, mm -hmm. uh, how you construct a short sale is almost more important than the actual uh, vehicle that you're shorting. So I do a lot of synthetic puts. I short, if it's a stock is volatile, I short stocks and define my risk by buying out of the money calls. Very simple. Yeah. And, uh, and that and but but listen, that's a really important distinction. I know, Doug, you you hear me say this all the time. I I don't believe retail investors should be shorting stocks. Like okay, but I, I do. always write in my columns. I write. I'm very transparent yep. on on real money on the street. Um, dot com, and I say you shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. You shouldn't. Individual investors should not be selling stocks short for three reasons. Number one, the risk reward is asymmetric. You can lose. An infinite amount on the upside, as Robert Wilson once learned in Resource International, but you can only make 100% if you find a fraud or a bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. The second thing is there's a gravitational pull higher in stocks over time. Stocks, depending upon your time frame, go up 6 to 8% per year. Uh, so that's a huge headwind. And the third, win, which, third issue, which is rarely discussed, Dan and Guy, is that if you're along a stock and it goes against you, it goes down. There is basically, it, it's waiting and your portfolio is being reduced. Yep. So you have basic risk control by virtue of mathematics. Right. If you're short a stock and it goes against you, it goes higher. It becomes a larger weighting in your portfolio. Ergo, short selling is only for professionals who don't play golf during the week, 
are at the trading desk 14 hours a day and that can control risk. So here's a here's sort of an, not a market comment for you, but just sort of what we deal with. And I know what you deal with. So and if Jay is responding to a comment from the comments, I didn't see it. But so Jay Rice in the comment is saying, saying one company's quarter report will be felt for years could be one of the dumbest comments ever. Now, I know I didn't say that. I didn't hear Dan. I just said, said it. it. I just said it. I just said, said it. I just said it could have ramifications. OK, I think not by the market or this and that or whatever. I think it's something that we might remember because guy remember. I, but that's much different than, you know, and I agree with you. It's something we I mean, I remember things that happened decades ago and sort of. Well, but, here. All right. Hold on. So let me let me. I agree let me, with let, you right, so, that. So, so put Jay's comment up there so I can see who we're talking about here. Um, so, so, Doug, I, I just want to go back to um, this point. I remember in the summer of 2000 and it just so happens, OK, that the company called ADI, OK, reported this morning. They missed and they guided down. Now the stock's up and that you'd say bad, bad news. You know, good stock result. Okay, well, we get that. I remember in the summer of 2000, it was July, it was the Q2. ADI, they had a really bad miss when expectations were high. They guided down. That was it, man. That was it. I'm just telling you, the semi-cycle had turned. Something happened that Yahoo put one too many banner ads up on a web page there and a whole bunch of, you know, unprofitable, you know, web-enabled.com, whatever. They went under. They stopped buying servers from Sun, Microsoft, uh, Sun Microsystems. They stopped buying fiber optic from Lucent and this and that, whatever. And, and, and it was just a, from there on out, you could have shorted every rally. And I'll tell you. And we were back then, okay? And I go back to 2007. This was November. It was the first week. Cisco reported a very difficult, like a, a disappointing result in guidance. And I remember what that meant for the tech trade. There was still a lot of hopium in the market. This was the same thing back in 2000. So what I'm saying, Jay, and, and I appreciate it. You can call me as dumb as you want. I've just seen these cycles before. And I just look at what's going on under the surface in other parts of technology. And if NVIDIA beats the number that they had guided to in late May that caused a trillion dollars in market cap gains around a narrative, Okay, around a narrative and they guide up. Okay, but they don't guide up enough to keep the stock going higher. Something will have changed, in my opinion, for the whole tech trade, because what I'm looking at under the hood, it's already starting to change. And this would be the confirmation of it. So that's kind of my answer to that. Doug, thoughts on that? Because to me, I got a very long memory about a lot of this stuff. And, you know, pattern recognition is probably one of, with a bit of nuance, one of the most um, important tools in my toolbox as I think about it from an investor, from a trader, and obviously from a pundit. There's, also, there's an old saying that bottoms are processes um, and uh, tops are events. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've done well buying stocks on dividend cuts or dividend eliminations or a situation like ADI uh, and maybe a situation like NVIDIA, who will be tonight, and you'll get an initial burst of enthusiasm. And tomorrow will look a lot different. Um, look, it's uh, it's really hard. It, it's hard to put your thoughts transparently out in the business media, as we all, as some of us try to do. It's even harder to be transparent and take ownership um, of those of those things. Um, but I, I agree with your observations one hundred and ten percent, Dan. 
You know, I think there's a, and I understand it's human nature to want things to go. I, I understand everything that's sort of what, why people want the stock market. I get all those things. What I've learned is if you're just constantly bullish in the face of all the things that we've talked about, there's no, there are no ramifications for that because you're sort of reinforcing people's belief system and they, people like that to be in that echo chamber. I totally get it. When you then try to point out the things that can go wrong and the things that are concerning you, um, people don't want to hear it. They especially don't want to hear it if the market continues to fly in the face of that. And I understand if stocks go higher, the reasons why don't necessarily matter if you're long those stocks and you're making money. I totally get it. But to not point out the things that we try to do on a day-to-day basis, I don't think you're doing anybody a service. And if it makes just a few people think about things differently, then I think we've succeeded. And by the way, Doug, I think that's sort of what your mantra has been for many years now as well. I, look, I, I, I despise perma bears as much as I despise perma Absolutely. Um, I like to think of myself as being honest, taking ownership, and, oppor- and an opportunistic contrarian with a calculator in my hand. By calculator in my hand is I, I don't believe in these bullshit price talks. I believe in developing a set of scenarios for a company, a sector, or the markets uh, based from the most pessimistic to the most optimistic. Morgan Stanley's research does a good job weighing each scenario by by attaching a probability to it and creating a range of expectations, not a single point price target. I think it's very presumptuous and implies a degree of precision that if you haven't been in this business, I mean, if you've been in this business for more than a month, you know, doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I just want to tie this together, what you said about shorting and, and how you construct shorts, because that probability that you just, you know, just kind of referenced there, assigning probabilities to outcomes, that's very much how I think about it from a trading perspective. And then if you're just doing some simple math, you kind of look and see, you know, I had somebody just to, as a quick example. So let, let's just say hypothetically, um, or, uh, I'm looking at my screen. NVIDIA is what, 460 something right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I had a, a a friend of mine hit me and say, hey, listen, I bought the October. This is out a couple months. NVIDIA, a way downside put spread, isolating a move. See that gap? That's 305, right? That was the where it closed the day before it reported earnings. So he's buying a put spread where he's long a put down near where the stock gapped to, okay, on that day. So if you just want to move the cursor up to, I think it was like 380 or something, and down to 350 or whatever the hell it is. Just incorporate. He thinks that over the next few months, this stock is going to fill in that gap from May. I said, that's fine. You're dedicating a certain amount of premium. You're defining your risk and you're playing for a level. I'll just tell you that the probabilities don't line up with the capital that you are deploying, playing for where you're not even in the money until the thing goes down a hundred bucks or something like that. So to me, that's a low probability bet, right? You're using math and, and I get it. He's better off taking that dollar amount that he's risking and just buy a far fewer amount of at the money puts or puts. I, I, I agree like totally. As my grandma Koufax would say, rots a ruck to that put play. Hmm. Right. But did you understand? So, you know what I'm saying is like assigning probabilities of outcomes. And again, we don't have crystal balls. We just go with the, the crystal. We don't have crystal balls. No, it's, and it's funny. Right it crystal balls as opposed to steel balls. Steel balls. There you, you go. Neither one of them work. That's what, that's where it's going. No, um, listen, Doug, 
we really appreciate what, what we want to do. I, I think, you know, because you, you, you watch or listen to us, this is a different vibe today than, than other days. I think you can tell the guy and I are really excited just to sit here in the middle of the day and shoot the shit with you about the markets, because, you know, I, I view you, you've been a really great mentor, not, you, you and I have never sat on a trading desk together. We've never been in an idea dinner together, that sort of thing. Um, but you've given me lots of color real time as I've been sitting on the seat at Fast Money, as we've been doing these sorts of things. And I really appreciate that because you are one of very few people. You started writing on the street in the late, is that correct? In the, in the late 90s, in the street.com, you were really I, early to this game. This is my tw- 26th year wow. writing for this. And it was it was, it's funny. You have a second. I can tell you how it happened. Yeah. So I was friendly with this guy, David Kansas, who was the managing editor of the Wall Street Journal and wrote in the old days when we were youths, the herd in the street column was a very influential column. Remember, you wake up in the morning and say, what company um, did Kansas write about? Actually, Dan Dorfman did it before he went on to CNBC. And he called me up. He says, uh, I'm be- I'm leaving the Wall Street Journal. I'm going with a guy named Jim Kramer to start the street.com. I'm going to be the managing editor. I'd like you to write a contrarian article. And I started actually in June 1997. I've been there 26 years. Um, I started as kind of a joke. Um, but I-, I actually find it helps my money management skills because I like to stack uh, the pros and the cons like a balance sheet and write it. More importantly, when I'm wrong, I go back to what I wrote in making a specific decision and to determine where I got it wrong so I won't do it again. But I have been writing, I probably have written over 100 million words. Well, you've helped me um, think about the the kind of intersection between being an investor trader and and a a market pundit. And you can obviously tell that Guy and I enjoy it. You obviously enjoy it. You like the idea of helping people. You wouldn't still be doing it uh, on the street for, you know, after 26 years. The only reason Um, I do it, and that's why I teach at Yale. Yeah. I mean, listen, and we have fun doing it. I will say this, and Guy, I don't know how you think about this, but, you know, having to speak about um, the markets every day, some of the same stocks every day, it's actually, um, I think I've gotten better for my punditry, uh, the way that we articulate things and hopefully explain things to people. And maybe that helps people think about it because they spend, you know, far less time at it than we do for the most part, right? They're doctors, lawyers, you know, bus drivers, whatever the heck they do, they don't have the time that we have. Um, But it's, it's really hard because because in an effort to be really transparent, you can't change your mind so much on the margin. You know what I mean? Like on, on the little things. And because that's when you get into that talking out of both sides of your mouth sort of thing, guy, you know? Well, and, and Doug can speak to that. And I think Doug watches closely enough to understand when that's taking place. And you do call it out. I think um, for a, a lot of people that don't watch it as closely, again, it's easy to blow hot and cold each day. Markets up, you're bullish. Markets down, you're bearish. And there are no real ramifications. If you can sleep with yourself doing that, more power to you. I, for one, know that I can't. So there has to be a level of consistency, understanding, though, that markets do change. And so everything is fluid in this world. That, that's our best. And it's I got to tell you something. Listen, I'm not cracking rocks every day, and I'm not digging ditches. So I'm not saying it's, it's grueling physically. But believe me when I tell you, I mean, talking about this stuff from on a day-to-day basis, I mean, it absolutely takes its toll. Well, listen, Doug Cass, we really appreciate you spending time with us. Um, we know that it is, uh, 
you know, a busy day, busy week in the markets, actually. So we really hope you'll come back. And and, and the next time uh, you're in New York City, we'd love to do a sit down face to face, you know, in the studio here. But this was great. We really appreciate all of your uh, opinions, uh, thoughts on the markets. And and again, I'm just going to reiterate this, uh, you know, over the years, just all of the, um, you know, just all the commentary has been really helpful to me as I try to, you know, get better at this every day. So thanks a lot, Doug. For you're on Mount this. Rushmore, Doug. You are a legend. You know how we feel about you. And again, you know, we bring you on just so people can understand the level of rigor it takes, to, you know, to get to where you've been. And I, I don't, I use that word to me. That's one of the mo- the biggest compliments I can pay somebody is, you know, they're rigorous and you clearly are on the top of the hill. Doug, we really appreciate your time. Guys, anytime you need me, I'm here for you. You're the man. You guys know where to find him. Realmoney.com. He is the founder of Seabreeze Partners. Doug, thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot. Legend. He is. I mean, you know, obviously we've known Doug a long time. That was fun. Absolutely. And, you know, people say you bring him to reinforce. No, I mean, we bring him because I think it's an education, not only for the audience, but for us. He does things. Um, really differently. I think the, the term you used was rigor, and I don't mean to say that you and I are not rigorous, but we, you know, like what we, you know, we're we're kind of like um, we're kind of those guys, uh, the color commentators, a little bit here. You know what I mean? Like, and and listen, you know what? I'm in the game. You know, we're trading, we're we're doing things, we're coming up with ideas, we're putting our money where our mouth is, and I, it's, uh, let's go because we only got a couple minutes. We've gone really late here, guy. Um, let's look at Nvidia real quickly. Okay, so the stock is at 470. Yesterday it traded 480 briefly. It was a Made an all-time high yeah. yesterday, yeah, and then it it traded 75 million shares, which I think is one and a half times normal yep. volume. Closed yep. effectively on the lows. It's bounced today, yeah. And I said it on the show last night. I mean, there's a very good chance we go back and, as you said earlier, we go back and look at that move in Nvidia and say sort of bookmark that that was it. And then obviously it's higher today. All this can be erased. I totally get it. But to your point about NVIDIA, let's bring up a chart and take a look. Yeah, well, there. It is. I mean, look, so so here's the thing, okay? If if if, if I didn't have a, like a scale on that axis, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? And it, it didn't look like a, a 300% gain from the lows. You spread I'd say, it out longer. I'd say that's look, a good looking yeah. chart. I, yeah. I'd say like, look at that, that gap that consolidation, you know, like we're going to gap up above that sort of thing. I, I mean, like, but I guess my point is, is that a trillion one market cap here, and then you look at it that way and you say to yourself, who the hell else does not know that this company is going to blow the doors off the quarter and the guidance. And so, you know, I said it on fast money last night, you know, it could gap, it could be up, you know, 50 bucks. And, and, and just, so you know, um, the options market is implying about a $50 move in either direction. How do I, I figure that out? I look at the 470 weekly strike call, mm-hmm. the 470 weekly strike put. They are $25 each. You put them together. That is the at the money straddle. You take that $50 in premium, you divide it by the strike 470 and you get about 10, 10 and a half percent. That's what the options market is implying. This stock can move between now and Friday's close. Okay. And if you look at that, okay, 50 bucks gets you back down towards that gap level. doesn't even get you filling in the gap. So that's the other reason I'll just say this about trading options into events where elevated, where the premium is really elevated. You can get the direction right, but if you don't get the magnitude of the move right, you could lose money. And that's also very disappointing. So trading binary sort of setups like this are also uh, very difficult. Listen, guy, the way I'm thinking about this is you get that move in the aftermarket. It's going to be trading up, I suspect, unless it's just below the whisper number, below the whisper number. But I think it gets sold either way. I just don't know who's left to buy it. Shorts are going to panic to cover. But who's the new long? I, that's the thing. I, I'm not really sure there are that many shorts at this point. I mean, yeah, I think a think lot of people probably. And I'll say this: 
I've missed in the seven, almost 17 years we've been doing fast money. I missed one show and I actually called in. It was in November of 2018. Governor Murphy had just been voted. He was in office for six, seven months, mm -hmm. whatever it was. There was this snowstorm seemingly out of the blue that New Jersey was not prepared for. I've never seen anything like it. It took me five hours to get oh, to my yeah, house to Newark Airport, which is typically 20 minutes. And that's not hyperbole. I only remember the entire thing because it was on that day NVIDIA reported mm -hmm. earnings and it was an unmitigated disaster. The stock, I think, went down about 28 percent in the after hours. So it's a much different company five years later. I yeah. get it. But this is a company that has a history of big moves to the upside post earnings yep. as well as to the downside. So it's anybody's guess what the interpretation of the market's going to be. This All right. Do you think really quickly, like the, there's a decidedly different tone in mega cap tech today? I'm looking at Apple up two and a quarter percent. Lower. Yeah. Like, you know, I get it. It's weird. Microsoft up two percent. Like it just feels like the powers that be said they want to rip this stuff. Google's trading up three percent. Meta's up three percent. Netflix is up five percent. It's just a kind of a weird mm -hmm. day. And, you know, again, is this a head fake? Do you want to be careful? And is, is did somebody get the somebody get the call that nvidia is going to be like you know blow the doors off well we already know they're going to blow the doors off okay um what else anything else guy that's it i think butters is back tomorrow is that I right or so. see i, I mean so. because we people are longing for butters as they should ey from sofi is back tomorrow i think she's gonna be in the seat no kidding i think maybe so I don't we know. got we I got the know. band that part of the band is back together but that's it for today we got to thank doug cass i mean He's his time man. is valuable thanks for spending with us doug and obviously our listeners and viewers, that's tremendous. Obviously, thank you, FactSet, as always, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll be back at 1 o'clock Eastern time. God only knows where the market's going to be, but we'll talk about it. We'll take criticism. We'll take compliments. But either way, we'll be here. Talk to you later, folks. Sarah.